Welcome to another episode of the Mindset Athlete Podcast with me, James Roberts, transformational coach, two-time Paralympian, and TEDx speaker. I have another awesome episode for you today, so let's get straight into it. And on today's show, I've got a very special guest, Jeff Strucker. Jeff leads the unbeatable army. He's a decorated soldier enlisted in the U.S. Army at age 18, retired with almost 23 years of active federal service. In 2017, he was inducted into the U.S. Army Ranger Hall of Fame. He spent most of his Army career in the 75th Ranger Regiment. While serving in this unit, Jeff competed in and won the best Ranger competition in 1996. He then served at the University of Louisville, where he was recognized as the U.S. Army ROTC Non-Commissioned Officer of the Year. Jeff spent his final years in the U.S. Army serving as a chaplain in the Airborne and Rangers units. So without further ado, Jeff, welcome to the show. James, it's great to be with you, buddy. Good That's to my, see you. It's my pleasure. Good to see you, Jeff, again. Obviously, so we get the formalities out of the way. So people have some context as to how you and I know each other. I've been on Jeff's show uh, at the back end of... 2021 when the olympics in tokyo was on so i wanted to have jeff back on my show just for his story and obviously the introduction doesn't do you justice (laughs) well your story is pretty amazing too man and thanks again for being able or being a guest on the show and helping get the first season off the ground oh it's my absolute pleasure and thank you for obviously inviting me on for obviously and and kind of speeding it up so i could obviously appear earlier on the show so it must be appreciated so if we, we we talk about your days at the university of louisville and and being the non-commissioner uh not non-commissioned officer of the year uh, for people that don't know about the rotc obviously i grew, grew up in a military environment uh, a military family so i know what rotc is and i'm being my father is a retired U.S. Air Force. I know what it is. So for people that don't know what the ROTC is and what it does uh, more so outside high school and into the uh, third tier of education universities, what is it and what does it consist of? Yeah, ROTC is basically university students that are checking out the military, not just the U.S. Army, but the Navy, as well as the Air Force. They have ROTC programs all across major colleges and universities in the United States. I think um, seven, nine hundred schools have programs. Um, And for a year or two, it's just learning the basics of what it would be like to be an officer in the United States military you're kind of just taking it as a university class, for lack of a better word. At some point, if you really like it, the military is going to ask you to make a commitment and they're going to give you a commission after you finish the university, graduate, and then expect you to serve some time. It doesn't have to be on active duty. Um, Maybe it's in the Guard, the National Guard or the Reserves, which means basically one week in a month or two weeks a year. But it's the program that helps uh, university students transition to become military officers. What's the difference then for me then in terms of the difference between what they would do at a university, say, versus a high school? Because 
so people got some context of where I'm coming from now. Uh, I went to a Department of Defense high school out in Belgium. So mm-hmm. ROTC, uh, we had an Air Force um, ROTC program in the American school. So what what is some of the the, the the differences and some of the similarities between the two programs. Yeah. By the way, for your listeners, uh, James got a chance to grow up. And one of the places that I always wanted to visit, always wanted to be stationed in Belgium, shape Belgium, um, and never really got a chance to go spend any time there at all. So um, I wish I had a chance to visit that beautiful place where you spent some time in your childhood. Junior ROTC at the school level, um, primary, uh, I mean, at the, you know, under, uh, the high school level is just designed to help students become better citizens. You understand the basics of what it means to be a citizen of a free country. There's really no expectations and no obligations. When you get to the ROTC program in a university, those first, that first year or two, for the most part, there's no obligation, no expectations. You're pretty much a university student and you're taking ROTC as a class, an elective. At some point, they're going to ask you to make a commitment and that's when the pressure starts to increase. But the ROTC program as a whole is designed to prepare you to be a leader in the military specifically explaining the duties and functions of an officer in the United States military, all branches of the U.S. military. So that's the big difference. Junior ROTC, helping you become a better citizen. ROTC, preparing you to become a military leader and an officer. I think they're good programs, I think, because I I didn't do it. So to give people clarity, I didn't do it in high school uh, for whatever reason of... um, I didn't potentially want to wear a uniform some of the time yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. that you have to do as a requirement of the junior uh, ROTC program. Uh, that might be a little bit of rebellion to a certain extent because uh, most of Europe don't wear a school uniform. Uh, North America doesn't wear a uniform. Obviously, in Britain, it's a requirement to go to school. They have to wear a school uniform. So for me, I, I, I don't regret it. I probably missed out a little bit from uh, there's probably I'm dipping my toe into leadership roles uh, in my current role now in coaching. And to a certain extent, uh, I was talking to a fellow amputee that does Toastmasters. Uh-huh. I thought it no longer existed. Obviously, it's going straw. So I've obviously looked into that. And these are things that I was exposed to. Gosh, we're talking 20 years ago plus that if I maybe would have been a little bit more comfortable stepping outside of my comfort zone and to be experimenting with some of these things, I'd maybe be further along uh, my journey uh, when it comes to public speaking or, or leadership roles of not doing the trial and error and being very, very uh, it comfort comfortable being in, in those high-pressure environments. Obviously, what we're going to talk about, obviously, with you, uh, of going to which I didn't know until I obviously read some of the backstory for you, that you were actually in uh, Black Hawk Down, really, uh, mm-hmm. not the movie. Uh, so so talk to people that maybe not aware of that Somalian conflict and, and bring maybe a, a more realistic perspective on maybe what the film may be dramatic. Dra- 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 I can't say the word dramatized 
Well, um, first, there's a book that led to the movie. The book, Black Hawk Down, was a bestseller, stayed on the list for a long time. And the book is really, really well done. The book came about as a result of some news articles. So there was a reporter that interviewed us when we returned from Somalia that became this series of news articles. Those news articles did their best to explain to everybody what happened over there. Why did the world's news agencies see helicopters shot down and vehicles on fire and bodies being dragged through the streets? <clears throat> that news article became the book Black Hawk Down, which became the movie. And I'll just um, answer a question that maybe one of your listeners is thinking right now. Is the movie accurate? Yeah, it's a major motion picture. You make movies to make money. That's why they make movies. But for a major motion picture, they did a great job with Black Hawk Down. I'm very proud of the way it turned out. So why we ended up in Somalia. Um, there was a drought that caused a famine back in the early 1990s. And it was affecting several countries in the Horn of Africa, on the east coast of Africa. Um, Kenya, Ethiopia, and Somalia especially were most affected by it. And in the uh, 1992-ish time frame, hundreds of thousands of people were dying on the, you know, dying of for lack of food, dying out of starvation. And the world was watching this on the news. In fact, if your listeners were old enough to remember, even popular musicians came together and they did this huge benefit concert to try to raise money to help keep people alive in Africa. Um, massive uh, concert at Wembley. Um, trying to help out people in Africa. And um, the country of Somalia, unlike Kenya and Ethiopia, didn't really have a military or a police force. So now it's just wild, wild west and anybody doing anything they want. As long as you got guns, you can pretty much do whatever you want. In December of 1992, the United Nations showed up to try to help feed people that were dying by the hundreds of thousands from starvation. And the U.S. came as part of the United Nations. And the whole goal was just give people enough beans and rice to keep them alive for one more day. By the spring and the summer of the next year, the, com the, the situation in the capital city of Mogadishu was just descending into chaos. And some of the warlords that were there were trying to fight each other and become the most powerful guy there. And one of those warlords made the decision to start to target United Nations forces. So he ambushed U.S. supply convoys. He attacked United Nations food distribution sites and killed a lot of people. And in the summer of 93, he did a big ambush of a U.N. Secure, a food site and killed 24 U.N. workers in one day. And that prompted the United Nations Security Council to come together. And the Security Council said, hey, we've got to take this guy out, a guy by the name of Mohammed Farah ID. <clears throat> so my country responded with a very small special operations, a surgical force that was supposed to go into the capital city, capture or kill ID, and basic, basically bring him to justice for the death of all of these United Nations workers. That's how we ended up over in Somalia in the first place. 
if you've seen the movie Black Hawk Down, they try to explain on the scene in like the first 30 seconds with words on the screen what's going on. But in 30 seconds, you can't describe the real conditions. You know, it's just too complex um, in world events. But that's how um, this small special operations force ends up over in Somalia. Do you think, obviously it's a complex question, it's quite armored in terms of being able to answer this. Do you think the United States possibly underestimated it and that's why potentially things went wrong? Well, totally. Um, if you look at it from, depending on what angle you look at it, yes or absolutely yes or perhaps no. Um, there was really no great intelligence. So when we went over there, it was kind of like, it's going to be bad. We don't know how bad it's going to be, but we know it's going to be bad. And when you get over there and, get, and start doing your job, then you'll start to figure out how bad it is. So we did a lot of missions over there. Everybody only knows Black Hawk Down because it's what made the book and the movies. But we did a bunch of missions over there and each one of them started to get a little bit more dangerous. And all of us were learning just how bad this thing was going to get. But the answer, the, the long answer to your question, short question is, yeah, when we decide to go do the operation that becomes known as Black Hawk Down, we don't really know how many bad guys we're going against. Could be 200. Could be 2,000, could be 20,000. You'll figure it out when you get there. And when we get in the door, you have a couple of hundred of us um, special operators going into a part of town with 10, 12,000 bad guys. And when you do those kind of numbers, you're going to get Black Hawk Down results every time. Well, it, it speaks volumes because look at the, the, the state of the country still. And this yeah. is about 30, almost 30 years later. Okay, yeah. it's split off and it's splintered. Uh, a, what is now Somalia and Somaliland um, and obviously right. you've had a, as uh, my mother likes to do cruising lots and the, it's probably synonymous of the Somalian pirates now but yeah. that's probably as a result of what you're talking about in the early 90s of those are people that are I think I, I'd seen a, a TikTok of a, ch a Chinese businessman going in there to do to, 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 Japanese sorry Going there for tuna, and he obviously, well, what can we do to be able to you fish for? I get prime tuna steak, and those people went from piracy to become to go back to be fishermen, but they would have been probably fishermen thirty years ago, and their only source of income was to raid ships for the last twenty twenty five years. Yeah, when people hear about Somali piracy, it seems like pirates didn't didn't piracy end like a hundred years ago. And I try to remind them, like in most of the countries of the world, there's a government, there's a military, there's a police force which stops evil men from doing whatever they want. Somalia doesn't have that. Still to this day, Somalia doesn't have that. So yeah. But he decides, let's get in our little fishing boat and we're going to go over there and we're going to try to take down a super tanker and try to steal their cargo or at least hold it hostage until the big shipping companies pay us a lot of money. And international law makes piracy a crime against virtually every country. But there's no government that you can appeal to in Somalia saying, hey, get your people under control. And James, I don't know if you're aware of this. Um, I went back over there with a good buddy of mine a few years ago, um, and we went back over there to kind of uh, go back over the ground that we fought over. 
And I had hoped going back to Somalia just a couple of years ago that things would be better for the people. Like there was a lot of bloodshed. It was a terrible battle. Maybe the country would be better off today. And it's not. Man, it was heartbreaking to see the conditions there. It's it's actually worse today than it was during that battle of Black Hawk Down. And it's because there's no there's nobody there stopping evil men from doing whatever they want to do. In fact, you watch the news and every time they, they try to put a government together, a, 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 prime, a parliament or a Supreme Court, it gets blown up by, um, you know, terrorists. So it's nothing but just outlaws and wild, wild west over there. Well, that's that's one way of, uh, to a certain extent, control, isn't it? Yeah. By, by a fear. Um, okay, we in the Western world have the media, so that's the, that's the other yeah. alternative of being right. able to smet, 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 uh, scaremonger, scaremonger, and to to create. Obviously, what we had in the UK, uh, uh, this is embarrassing a little bit, but obviously it's a joke around the world of stockpiling toilet paper. Yeah, but yeah. it was ca- caused by a hysteria of oh, this going to run out. Okay, well. If there was an apocalyptic event, you wouldn't you have thought human beings would stockpile stuff that doesn't go off? Okay, toilet paper won't go, won't go off, but it's not something that you can eat, right? Or very easily. I think you just made the perfect analogy. If you wanted to know what life was like in Somalia right now, think zombie apocalypse where there's basically anything goes with anybody who's got a gun and everybody who's got a gun is trying to kill somebody else with a gun so they can become more important. It really is. That's kind of what the country of Somalia is like. And that's what, that's what the world descends to when there's no, no laws and nobody there to enforce the laws. Well, it's close. It's a tipping point in the West to a certain extent yeah. now in terms of what, what's, I don't want to go political with this one, but in terms of, you know, what what the normal citizen will allow the government to be able to get away with because they did as they were told for, depending on what country you were in, the severity of a lockdown. So people probably said, no, we're not, not going to do it. Whereas I think this is maybe more so of my upbringing of, it's more yes, yes, say if if it's for the betterment of the community, I don't like it, but I'll suck it up for a little bit of I think, and that was probably most of the British Isles for the first six weeks yeah. of twenty twenty because it was like oh it's only going to last six weeks. I don't know how you could put a guarantee like that on, but and 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 soon soon things obviously trickled away in terms of what people were willing to do. And I'm not going to generalize and say people went go back to normal, but obviously there that's a little bit of a, of you could say a, a nod to the to the sixties or the the people that didn't like the Vietnam War of we're going to push back against authority, and obviously uh, from the U.S. perspective it's quite dangerous because some people want to get rid of the police. It's like well if you get rid of the police, yes they're not all good. But if you were to get rid of law and order completely, be pretty much anarchy in the U.S. with, with yeah. the right to arms. Thank you for pointing that out, man. That's the 
perfect description of what it's like. You want to know what a society is like without police and the good men and women there to keep the laws and to make sure that the citizens obey the laws. Well, you don't have to look any farther than Somalia. That's what it looks like when when the good guys and gals in uniform um, no longer exist. And uh, I'll just say it. I, I don't care who I offend. The people that are calling to do away with the police are absolutely idiots. And they're going to be the first one that try to call for some help whenever bad things are happening to them. But there's nobody to call to if you were to get rid of the first responders that come to your aid. So well, it's, it's changing stuff higher up. It's laws or enforcement procedures. Uh, you probably could criticize any police force in the world. Oh, uh, I lived in London for a little bit, and that police force gets kind of uh, an ordeal because of um, it's a form of racial profiling. Mm-hmm. Okay, people, no, well, you and I can you can see me. I mix race, so technically, if we looked at statistics and statistics alone in Britain or the US, as a young typical if i use the u.s i'm technically black we mm-hmm. use statistic i'm more likely to commit a crime reoffend. so thus obviously yes it's not right that people will be racially profiled because i could be innocent but i'm more likely to be incarcerated than i am to go to, to university which is horrific but yeah. in terms of if you only had that to go on the statistics as the person is more likely to commit a crime. Thus, I've never been stopped and searched. So, uh, and, and my mother's white and she has. So it kind of obviously show, shows that argument of, I've always joked of, uh, they'd have two communities to, to have to, to answer to because I've got the disability community as well. But in the serious aspect of it, that is quite shocking because people will use that to use that argument. That's why I need to get rid of the police. But are people more likely to carry some sort of weapon in 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 urban areas? Yes, obviously London's got knife crime. Mm-hmm. US obviously, it's almost like it's every five minutes there's a shooting. It feels like it. And obviously, schools are looking to to do preventative measures as opposed to. I think the world the world looks at it from the outside perspective of why don't you solve the problem as opposed to put a bandaid over the issue. As in, if you're trying to create, I don't know what was it the last thing I saw, doors that you couldn't be able to get in from the outside. Well, okay, in the first place of maybe, and this is quite easy, but whether or not somebody would change the constitution you just change the wording of the document and then obviously it's not as easy to get uh, a weapon in the first place which i think the last shooting in britain i think is in the 80s and i think it was before i was alive because they they made it more difficult to be able to get uh, technically probably criminal because they'll probably get a uh, firearm but in terms of like legally, you have to do background. I don't see the problem in the US implementing something like that. I've, if people got to jump over f- f- further hurdles to be able to get access to the to technically a right, like well, we're not living in the 18th century, 
anymore in terms of document is for if you really nitpick it it's very sexist very racist and it's targeted to white males as in and it would be people of prestige so it would affect every aspect of us life and the australians have done it they've looked at their 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 constitution and said well we need to maybe look at how we treated the the natives and change the wording that it honors them because technically they were there first but i think coming back to, to what i'm talking about is is looking at it as it's not your civil right to carry an arm because if somebody can get access to uh what was it a sub machine gun that's quite dangerous okay i think there's been a sh- i think the last one a long, long time ago was one military personnel sh- shot up a base because he got access to and that was a lock thing but that that one's probably more serious because you're thinking that shouldn't happen because that person should be monitored etc but when it comes to probably the ordinary citizen like well if you were to take away the gun does it take away the freedom okay these are deep questions but but would you would you then if you then took away the right to arms would you lower the risk of right. shootings we don't we yeah. don't know we don't know that until obviously you 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 were to to try it would the us ever do it i don't think so because yeah. of power right I'm glad you said it that way. And for the rest of the world that sits back and watches this chaos in the U.S., and I don't think there's a really a much better word, chaos about gun laws, you have people that are just so anti, they're militant against gun laws. And then you have people that are so pro-gun laws and so for it that they seem like they're absolutely on the other extreme. And it almost feels like there's nobody really talking to each other anymore. And I, I'm convinced the rest of the world sits back and watches the U.S. on this issue and say, I don't understand this country. Why are you people so, uh, why is this so complex for you? Why is it so difficult? And the, the truth is, as a guy sitting in the middle of this discussion, the it's power, right? It's not even guns. It's just power. And it's two different political parties that are going to use this issue to make every, to hate everybody else that doesn't do, doesn't agree with them and try to get more votes. And the opposite political party uses the exact same issue, just the opposite side of the discussion to make my, to make uh, people hate the other party so that I can get more votes. And what's happened is we've taken this issue and, and it's become just chaos. In the United States, because the parties have used this thing for power. Uh, well, I think every I, government I, does that to some extent, I'm Jeff. The conversation has gone in the last few years on this one. I think I think every government's like that to certain. You could say that probably about the British government. It'd be uh, well, you, Boris is no longer a prime minister, but everybody knows this in terms of everything that he did for the last two years has kind of been thrown in his face. That whatever. It's almost like there's an agenda, right? And ours is more so the media because it's supposed to be impartial, but it's not. 
Um, yeah. Whereas in the US, obviously, depending on what network you listen to, is obviously going to favor one or the there's, other. There's no impartial news in the United States either. In fact, I'll tell your listeners, when I want to hear real, accurate coverage of US events, I go watch the BBC because they typically will display what really happened with less um, bias than U.S. news agencies because the U.S. news agency puts their own spin on it. So I'll go to the BBC to try to figure out what's happening in the United States. Well, with ours, I think the problem is is uh, it was, what was it, the, the scandal that he's got, Partygate. So pretty much, <laughs> not as bad as Watergate, but pretty close. No. But yeah. in terms of what was allowed, but to, to give people some context if they don't know British politics, the leader of the opposition is supposedly got done something similar and hasn't been prosecuted. You're thinking, well, if that's wrong, this is also wrong because if it was at that time that was technically law of you couldn't congregate with a certain amount number of people, it doesn't matter if it was for pleasure or for personal thing. If because it was it, this is where it gets stupid now. If you didn't have a meal, it was okay. But if you did, obviously you can't do it. So what they, they've done for the opposition was, oh, I was just having a be- uh, meeting with the work colleagues and it was a beer. It's like, well, technically, how many people were there? So the, the, so was, I think because he's the the leader of the country, it's like one rule for But uh, But I think where it's almost like a scapegoat to a certain extent of, okay, We'll, we'll use the politicians as, well, supposedly they were above the law, they could do anything. So it almost gives everybody an entitlement, I can do whatever I like. Because right. they do it and they don't take any notice. Why should I? But it's almost like two right, uh, two, two wrongs don't make a right, as a ch- what you would be taught as a child. So for me, it's like when people kind of use it as I'll pay no attention, it's like, well, that makes no sense rationally because, yes, what they did right or wrongly that's technically anybody in power would 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 i don't want to use french but to 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 swear but they would not care any less of if they were to take shortcut cheat get ahead etc that's potentially I don't I'm going to get bashed for this, but that's probably why they've been successful and where they've got to is they were willing to stop at nothing to get what they've got. And okay, in the sporting realm, you probably could say Michael Jordan or Kobe. Of like that, they would step over their own the corpse of their own grandmother to, to win. Most people are not like that, but when it comes to... Uh, I was watching something the other day of like breaking down the words of government, politics, <laughs> and the actual words they can... Uh, I think politics is to literally to mean to lie. I think like uh, no, so par- parliament is literally parley and to talk lies. Thinking, well, they don't tell the truth, or they don't try and be able to. They'll try and scheme their way around the question to not answer it fully. Thus, it's quite interesting to listen to. I won't say t- social media is impartial, but. It will give you information that you consume. Thus, it will. It's quite interesting to look at the English language as words, government, poly- I I implore people to obviously go look at this because it's it, it's quite. It's, it's I find it fascinating because it's looking at it as well. Parlay technically is a 
pirate word <laughs> if you were to look at the uh, pirates of the caribbean but it's to have a talk and they're not lying uh but to look at all these different things i think every country's got problems it's just to what level and degree of uh and the the, conf- uh, the, the conference the the concert you're talking about is obviously i think it's band-aid isn't it or live aid so people yeah. would have seen it in uh what's um live aid that's it yeah yeah queen's film uh, bohemian rhapsody um, hey James, you just described. I, I hope your listener just picked this up. You, you know what would fix a lot of the problems around the world if government leaders, if militaries, if countries would just act like your mom taught you to act on the playground, right? If we would just do that as adults, if we would do that at at the national leadership with our militaries, country to country. Most of the problems around the world would simply go away overnight if we would just act like mom told us to act on the playground. Yeah, but power is addictive. Yeah, it and when change, you get so it changes power, people. <laughs> it will change people. I will. And I, I, will, I, I watch. Just remind my friends: people will kill to get power, and they will kill even more to keep it. So, well, I watched a documentary about Putin's rights to power, and he's thinking he changes the person. I was like, he didn't want it. However, like, I can't remember how long ago. It's about 20 years ago. He didn't want to be... Um, I can't remember what the difference between there, the Prime Minister and President. Well, he's done both, right? Like three or four times. Well, he that's goes from manipulative one- in terms of uh, that's not right because technically no. that's a dictatorship. Right. If you looked at it. Um, and I think my mom was looking at something. Uh, okay, it's Western news, so that they probably have an agenda against Russia anyway. But... One of people, I think his visor, he fell out of a, suspiciously fell out of a window. Thinking, well, okay, that's not like he'd be either pushed or thrown out. But obviously you can't you can't say things like that without facts. So I haven't got facts. So I can't either prove or disprove my opinion on that. But that would be where I would go down the line of, of somebody's mystic- mis- mysteriously happened to them and... Uh, was that a, a photo club last night of talking about like photoshopping and the uh, 176 years of it being into so photoshop's nothing new but uh the lady showed like it through political stuff so stalin lenin um oh gosh i think it vietnamese leader uh Chinese, yeah. So, so and like when people fall out, they're erased from yeah. from official paper. I don't think whether or not that would happen in the British or U.S. government. Who's to know? In my, it might right. view as well. But you're thinking that's manipulative because ultimately that person was there, and I think the best one was Stalin from 1928 till 1949. The 1949 picture by himself, just because people fell out of favor, thinking, "Well, yeah. that's quite scary in terms of right. what people will do to, I'll say, necessarily manipulate a population or put them under the thumb for sure." To be able to kind of show, I think the best one is probably Mussolini because he's on a horseback, and it's the, the original picture of the train holding the horse. And there's no clouds, and then it's been edited after it. It's like, okay, so you're not 
that strong a person because you can't control the horse. And okay, the Chinese obviously I was speaking, obviously going for a heat wave and they're shooting things into the clouds again to be able to get rid right. of that. But we're not that in control as human beings as we think. But obviously when it comes to also the things that are maybe frowned upon, maybe like yesteryear, like obviously power, money, mm-hmm. greed, uh, lust. Um, you'd probably have to help me out with like, from a religious perspective on some of the others. But in terms of some of those things are obviously bad that people necessarily, I think the best one I've seen of Yates, somebody spinned it as it's not money that's the problem, it's the obsession with getting it. Yeah. So it's almost... No, you, you just described all of those things that you just listed by themselves are actually harmless and maybe even a little bit good. Like power can do great good. Money can do a lot of good. Food or, you know, um, a, a sexual appetite is is very powerful in a marriage. You, you, you let it get out of control, though, and it does great harm, not just a little harm. It does a lot of harm when power or money or set or lust or, uh, you know, all of those things get out of control. And this is human nature. So when you don't have a police force or a military to help keep people under control, eventually you're going to get a mob and a mob will do whatever feels good. That's mob rules, right? They're going to do whatever they want to do and whatever feels good because there's nobody to stop them. And uh, I've seen it firsthand all over the world. I'm serving for almost 23 years in the U.S. Army, but nowhere have I seen it more vivid than in Somalia. And to this day, it's pretty much mob rule over there. Well, Yemen's probably not far behind, but obviously that's probably, that's probably after your time in service. Yeah, and again, you're looking at all of those countries out there that don't have a strong government that is helping enforce laws. I'm not saying that laws stop bad things from happening, but something somebody that's enforcing those laws will help keep the population from doing crazy things to one another. And look all over the world at places that don't have that, and you'll see chaos. That's what you'll see. Well, I think I think uh, one of the things that from I think this probably helps with having family in the US and in the UK. I'll look at both, but and how it relates how it affects my family, which is probably a good thing. But I think uh, what is being challenged in Britain, especially, is the right to protest at the at the at present because the 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 powers that be are trying to make it whatever it's almost like it's not allowed to be able to go on strike uh it's like but like but it's like we're going backwards <sighs> we're gonna guess now here for the historians obviously to, to, to correct me if i'm wrong we'll go to back to the industrial revolution if we get rid of some of these things because it's like well it's in the u.s constitution the free speech and one of those things of free speech and technically it's a right in Britain as well is to protest if you don't agree with something so it's almost like there's a I don't know what's wrong with the world but it's not willing to sit down and have a debate or discussion it's like no 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 
we're we're not gonna agree. We're gonna create whatever obstacle. You could say the same about Brexit. Your opinion, you're not willing to sit to the table and come to an amicable decision. Did I expect? And I'm and I'll put, I'll say to people. Obviously, I voted to leave, and, and I'm in that bracket of over thirties that did, um, which is a minor in a minority, but. I lived on the continent. I lived in a country that has got the European Union, NATO. Uh, I can't think what. There's about two or three organizations. Okay, NATO technically has con- governments to 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 be action and to move, or they go into a conflict. It's either one country is attacked and they all go in. Uh, or they stand off as the cases in the Ukraine at the moment where people kind of, well, why, why are you sitting and watching? It's like, well, Russia's not stupid. But in theory, oh, I think with my mother working for NATO for 30 odd years, she could see, well, technically, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not, the US, US is technically encroaching a little bit and they are poking the, the Russian. Is this described as a bear? Yeah, parking the bear. It's gonna, it's gonna. Okay, you're getting it. We, we've given you warnings. Yes, you were allowed to put stuff in the Czech Republic. Some people won't agree with me this, but but hey, that is a fact. In Poland, Ukraine would probably step too far as because if you invite them in, okay, is that an agenda from the US? Possibly. Because it wants to flex its muscles worldwide to kind of say we're still we're still we're still relevant we're still dominant, and those two countries have probably got inferiority complex with each other for gosh as long as I can remember. Um, f- from like cold, like maybe like some of these politicians from the from what they've brought up with with the Cold War as we've got to hate that country with a passion and it's like well you can coexist you can to a certain extent so i i probably see it from a different perspective as okay i've grew up in an environment that my mom talks about the cold war that's the job was most secure then because there was a common enemy it was the the, the communist and there was uh okay all the countries that i've probably gone in it as i grew older were packs of the soviet union so right it's a little bit it's a hard it's not it's not ideal from a a humanistic perspective to see people being killed and civilians being shot at uh by i think the probably the worst one was probably that plane shooting at a building and it's like well there's no justification to shoot at civilians other than maybe you're something wrong with your screw loose in terms of you probably yeah. shouldn't be a pilot and you've got you indiscriminately firing upon civilians which is a big no-no mm-hmm. from a military perspective as you that's you you use this etiquette in terms of you're told not to do that from square one but i think it's coming back to that argument underneath is is power control leverage of to a certain extent I don't know why the US would be doing other than other aspects of, you know, the, the currency being 
almost worthless to a certain extent because of fuel and other things of we needed to be relevant in another way and show dominance that we are still as as strong as ever um which is probably an ego thing <laughs> from a little bit yeah. but obviously you've got the russians you've got the chinese and you're going to move them closer and closer together which is yeah. quite scary yeah, um, I joined the U.S. Army back in the 1980s, which means I was there during the height of the Cold War. And everything that we did for years was to prepare to meet Russia and the Soviet Union in the big one, World War III. And then when the Berlin Wall fell in late 1991, the, it was like the whole world didn't know what to do next. And I don't mean just the U.S. military. I mean everybody spent an entire generation with two superpowers that were pretty much back and forth on the brink of launching nuclear weapons and annihilating the world population. And then after the Berlin wall falls, now people have to figure out a new normal. And I think the globe is still trying to figure out a new normal. I think you have a couple of world dominant powers right now, Russia, China, the United States, and, um, a, and when you start to, when they start to, you know, rattle their swords is what, you know, the, the media likes to call it. When they rattle their swords with one another, everybody in the world sits back and holds their breath a little bit because of the amount of the world that this could impact. And I don't mean just fuel prices or the value of your currency, but like billions of lives all over the world are now being, you're playing games with billions of lives. Um, and man, that's the ultimate way of showing your power, right? Like dominating millions or billions of people's lives. So you, you, you let that go to people's heads and really bad things can happen. Yeah, but you're never going to get to the realms of, you know, the film Viva, Viva Vendetta because people will not, would not tolerate it in terms right. of, okay, it's maybe coming in subliminally and under this under the carpet a little bit with cu like electronic currency and going down the realms of you know China. that's that's scary because it's like every action that you every move that you make is see like surveillance and okay Britain's not far behind in terms of like surveillance um believe it or not but obviously not to that extreme but if uh I, what was I watching I was watching a British person in China. And he's like, he was compared uh, the poorest district and city in China versus New York City. It's like, oh, the U.S. should win, but he's like, oh, the subway's clean. Yeah, not it's no, 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 nobody's ever been quiet. It's like, well, because that's a police state to a certain extent. Right. <laughs> whereas the I don't know what subway station he used in the U.S. Whereas I would have gone, well, okay, uh, a. a, a Unfair comparison would probably to do Wall Street. That thing will not be dirty, <laughs> right? Yeah, because it's uh, and there's makeups of making Manhattan longer than it protects Wall Street, and obviously people in the comments, no, you can't do that because if if there was to be a cataclysmic event, that's maybe part of uh, the world that maybe should maybe crumble because of. Thousand and eight of they're not held accountable, so thus of Lower Manhattan was the flood. Okay, some people would be very homeless because there'd be people affected as well. But 
there's never been anybody brought to account. And I think what was the model that they used something similar to present day of all oh, the same will happen again. It's like, well, when will people kind of go, well, that's not acceptable of they, they cheated, they profited, they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Come back to your point of the playground and the parents, you're going to get, you're going to put over the knee and smack or belt of um, you've done something wrong. Here is the punishment. I'm not saying beating kids is the right answer, but in terms of the punishment for doing something wrong, thus most rational people wouldn't do it again. Because right. it'd be, okay, I did this wrong. This is what happened. And I think it's an Einstein quote of only an imbecile would do something over and over again and not expect it to, to something right. to change. Yeah. Okay, not a direct quote because I've changed it slightly. But that's a fact in terms of what you don't it's it's almost saying somebody oh run into the brick wall oh that hurt okay what, what are you going to do it again yeah, maybe you the answer be no of but i think this is this example you're liking better uh as a kid in the playground um i didn't have shorts on uh, mm-hmm. And we were messing about with martial arts, and the kid said, "Oh, can I kick your leg?" Like, yeah, go ahead, kick the wrong one. <laughs> he kicked the he. Well, what was it made out of back then? Say it's a titanium pole, so pretty what they are now. And they were like, "Well, it hurt." So I didn't tell you to kick that one, did I? So, and that's I can't remember how old. I'm probably about ten, eleven years old. So I, I'm probably a smart <laughs> back then in terms of being able to respond. But that's cause and effect. You yeah. you wanted to kick it. You chose the wrong one. Obviously, if you kicked the the non-prosthetic leg, I'd have moved it out of the way. <laughs> so so uh, I think the moral of the story, I think it's, it's it, I think the case in point that we're talking about, of there needs to be a little bit more real common sense will that ever happen when it comes to that law and order probably not because obviously uh, uh this is something when i worked in education for a little bit i said our oh, teenage kids would make great politicians i said why like, you're good liars <laughs> yeah like, but that's the truth if you're able to okay the, the they probably go into it with the the right intent you could say the same with pretty much probably any conflict in the last 20 years that Britain and the US have been involved. I shouldn't laugh with that. That the US and America have been involved with. They had motive and obviously well, Iraq's probably the the worst one because there was no... It's like what you're saying, he's got Nuclear weapons, doesn't have nuclear weapons. In theory, if they'd have lost Tony Blair and and uh, George W. Bush, uh, war criminal. So they really are, but would they ever be held accountable to that? Like the case of, um, well, the Yugoslav atrocities and things like that, like Slava Slava Milosevic is like, well, technically, that's the same thing. U.S. service, arm, armed service personnel have to do as you're told because that's your commander in chief, 
uh, if he says, jump, you say how high, and obviously you, it would be uh, subordination of if you, dep- whatever part of that chain that you 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 chose to not uh, do your obligation, obviously you'd be court-martialed. But in terms of that, if people were to look at things like that, I think probably that's probably why I'm educated and looked into looked into things like that. I was probably intrigued about what my parents did growing up. Yeah. There's probably things they can't tell me because it's right. top. It's not top secret, but as in it's security clearances and we can't tell you until da da da. da. Whereas I like when they when they do bring to like civilian people. Oh, if I tell you like James Bond thing, if I tell you I have to kill you, and I know they're joking because whereas people yeah. kind of go. Are you being? I'm not sure if you're being serious or you're joking, but I know that I grew up in that sort of environment. The my teenage years after September 11 pretty much changed in terms of what you could and couldn't do off base to keep your security. So uh, I've still got my high school letter jacket, but that that changed overnight. You didn't that you couldn't wear off base if you were to maybe go to another installation not so bad but any you you were almost taught to stay under the radar not bring uh, any sort of a due intention to yourself and, and, and probably that's maybe why i'm i'm i'm, oh, I'm because you're told to more so uh but that place changed overnight the security I've been back since, but that was about five years ago, and the security levels have gone up even more. I think the, I'll talk about you to the about afterwards because obviously it's uh, to do with uh, uh, security, but of of things of carrying like ID cards for me, it's people are in Britain are like, no, we're not, we don't want that because we don't want the state to be able to follow. It's like, well, technically, your passport was chipped, your mobile phones are walking GPS. Um, so if you wanted to stay off the grid, you're gonna have to say goodbye to technology then to be able to to to, to not be uh, surveilled. Whereas for me, as long as I know that I've not done anything wrong, technically I should be all right by the letter of the right. law. Yeah, James. One of the things I respect about you is your way of viewing the world. And obviously, being in shape Belgium with a father serving in the U.S. military and a mother that's connected to NATO and geopolitics, you get a chance. You grew up in an environment where you had a very different view of the world than the kid that's on the playground. And the world, as he knows it, only exists at home and in school. So, I think it's a luxury that I maybe don't give credit to because they're melting pot. So you've got to be very much probably a diplomat. Yeah. From, from the, okay, maybe my, uh, this is where I joke with probably the anglicized people when, you know, they raise their voice at people thinking, well, the person doesn't understand you. So shouting at them is not going to make any work. So I would do the opposite. I speak to, if I was speaking to, okay, if it's a child, obviously it's a child, but if it's an adult, you slow it down as, what what do I need to to be able to communicate communicate across that you can comprehend it and then obviously you understand what I'm saying? Okay, 
Uh, I got caught out with this recently because uh, I was speaking to a Brit that was in Norway. Um, uh-huh. And he's like, oh, you're using a lot of slang words. Obviously, Norwegian, they the Scandinavians are good with English, but they would get lost. It's like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. I don't realize. And and I've been criticized for this a little bit by Brits as well. I use a lot of American words. Like, well, I would, I would do because tech, that is a multinational base, but there's a, a big presence of Americans. I grew up predominantly around the Americans, so how I would speak would be. I don't. I don't, I make a conscious effort to not say sidewalk as when I'm referring to a pavement or um, what would be some of the other uh, aluminum, aluminium. I know the right. difference, but it's still technically yeah. the same word and the description of what, what it is. But I think it, for me, it gives me a luxury because I can speak to two, we'll, see, we'll put the Canadians in there as well, three, four different communities speaking the same right. language. Yeah. Just by and being true. Two countries separated by a common language, right? Um, well, and a war. And- <laughs> Yeah, you can speak both languages pretty well. Um, hey, one of the things I wanted to do before we wrap this article or this interview up is every time I get a chance to talk to my friends in the UK, I try to say thank you because over the last 30 years, not just the war on terrorism, but for more than 30 years, any time there was a problem and the US needed help, the UK was always there. And, and I've said, you know, the US has some friendships with other countries, but when it comes to the UK, it's more than a friendship. It's like a brotherhood. And for all of those folks that served in the United uh, in the UK and Commonwealth countries in the military, I just want to say thanks for being brothers and sisters in arms on battlefields around the world with me. I think they appreciate. It. Well, I, th- I think it's there's a common bond between the US and the UK that obviously goes back to. At least World War Two, if not maybe yeah. World War One. So, would the U.S. got into World War Two if they weren't attacked? We'll never know. Uh, possibly not. Which obviously Japan dropped the ball with that one. Um, but oh, this is probably an argument we'd probably have with the rest of Europe in terms of it's like well, especially now with obviously Brexit as well. Oh, we owe you a favour. It's like well. We did have help from the Canadians and Australians and the rest of the Commonwealth of the US to obviously liberate the rest of Europe, but we subst- we managed to help hold out for about three years. Yeah. You held the whole world so, for years, yeah. So it's so it's funny when the French call it Big Britain, the Germans Big Britain, not great. But obviously I know that it's a little island now. It's not what my mother her, and aunt grew up with, with it obviously being an imperial, like a, obviously a massive juggernaut on the world play. It's still, op- I think it still acts like that, which isn't a bad thing. But in terms of, I think it needs to obviously thank the US as well, because obviously it saw a common enemy. It's like, well, we need to get rid of this. Um, so we're going to end on a more less sombering notes so if you i'm going to pose this slightly different than i would normally do it especially to you jeff if you got to sit down with any coach 
and it could be in any facet of of, of coaching, uh, dead or alive, who would that be and why? Yeah, um, for me, I'm going to mention a name that probably no one listening to this on either side of the Atlantic is going to recognize, but there is a wrestling coach at the University of Iowa. He no longer coaches, but he is the winningest coach in any sports in history. His name is Dan Gable. Um, as an individual wrestler, he was virtually unbeatable. As a coach, he created a dynasty that really couldn't be beat. Um, and he did it by discipline and hard work. Like he didn't have a magic formula for beating all of the other teams. It was just working hard and being more disciplined. And if I could sit down with a coach just to learn a little bit from him, I would sit down with the University of Iowa wrestling coach, a guy by the name of Dan Gable. For all of your listeners, go look up his individual record as an athlete and then look up his winning percentage as a coach. I don't know anybody else that's even in the same ballpark as that, as his success rate. And my final question before we, we end the show if you have to summarize what we've been speaking about into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? What I would want everybody who who listened to this episode to hear is go home and say thank you to the emergency services that take care of you. Just simply tell them thank you for doing their job. Say thank you today when you don't need their help. That way, when the day comes that you do need their help, they know that they're appreciated. So if you get a chance tonight, go thank somebody from your emergency services for the way that they serve you, even um, when you're in need. So once again, Jeff, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Athlete Podcast. Absolutely. It's been great being with you, James. Thanks again for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this episode and got loads from it. Anything that was included and discussed will be available in the show notes below. And I would love to hear from you. Come and connect and ask your questions. I've been James Roberts from jamesowenroberts.com. Remember this quote by Chris Hoth. An athlete is a mindset. It's how you prepare, think and execute. Not by some elite status or physical stature. Anybody can be an athlete.